Welcome to the Sorge Podcast, where we explore Sikh and wider South Asian history, art and philosophy with historians, artists and researchers. So today I have the pleasure to talk to someone I have been wanting to host on the podcast for some time and has come up in a number of previous podcast conversations for the influence this guest has had on not just myself or on other people that I've spoken to. So without further ado, today I have the pleasure to talk to Amandeep Madra, founder of the UK Punjab Heritage Association, co-author of five books including gems such as Warrior Saints Volume 1 and The Golden Temple of Amritsar Reflections of the Past as well as being awarded an OBE for services to Sikh and Punjabi heritage and culture. So now the introduction is out of the way, I would obviously love to just start by saying thank you for making the time to do this. And I would also love to start with the question of your family background, your upbringing, your education, kind of how did you go from wherever kind of your ancestry came from to where you are today? Well, Ahmed, first of all, thank you very much. Thanks very much for having me on, and thanks very much for that very generous uh, introduction. I've listened to um, some of your uh, podcasts already. I found them really interesting. Uh, in fact, I kind of cheekily in- involved them in one of the uh, the book club conversations that we had uh, a few weeks ago as well. Um, so I really like the work you're doing, and um, yeah, all power to you. I think this is going to be a real, really valuable resource for the future um what's my what's my background how did i get into it gosh i don't really no i didn't have a light bulb moment as a child growing up that's for sure um i didn't grow up in a particularly i think i was born in southall but i didn't you know we didn't live there very long we moved to north Holt, just another part of that bit of suburban northwest london i didn't really have too many sick friends growing up but I think if there was a turning point it was um at university it's quite late isn't it a lot of people get the bug a lot earlier but for me it was at university and I read uh Kushwant Singh's two-volume book on Sikh history called The History of the Six which most people know and I was just floored by it because if <laughs> if you if all, if the only route to learning Sikh history is that which you hear of the Gurdwara or that which you hear from your parents as those kind of, uh, I don't want to be rude, but those kind of fairy stories, uh, those very polished stories where the Sikhs are good and the Mughals are bad and we are often victims uh, but always victorious and we always have the moral high ground, etc. Kashwad Singh's History of the Sikhs which isn't, you know, let's face it, isn't the best uh, rendering of Sikh history uh, in the world, but it's a really, really good one. Um, it's just an eye-opener. It, just, it reads like a novel because there are characters and they're real and there are moral questions and they're, it just feels a bit mucky. You know, everything's a bit grey. It's not quite as crisp and clean as you uh, led to believe. And that's... That I think that's really interesting, particularly for those of us that, frankly, have grown up with that kind of Western mindset where you're you're encouraged almost to be um, skeptical or um, at least question authority or question the, the the received way of doing things. And I just found it absolutely fascinating. So then I then I read every other book that I could get on 
um, on Sikh history, Sikh history, Sikh religion, which actually at my university library was about four books, but I was working up in the Midlands at the time. And so Wolverhampton Public Library became a very important source uh, for me. So I think that that was one part of it. And then why that stuck as a um, a bug, which has never gone away and I've never been able to shake off, I don't know. Some of us just have it, have this thing, I guess. Um, and then the other one are the, just like the human relationships you make along the way because they become extraordinarily important. And for me, that was meeting Pandit Singh um, and he's, he clearly and evidently had the bug <laughs> as well. Uh, we just kind of fed off each other in our early 20s and just we were uh, we traveled together went to India together went to Pakistan together went to went round every auction house and we'd flea market and uh, Bella Road was a Saturday morning haunt for us um, then we went into archives and, it, and it's continued it's continued for you know, better part of 30 years wow that's um I love these conversations because I get to learn so much and I also get to put people like yourselves kind of in a semi-hot seat and be like, well, all right, where did all of this begin? Like, where where was the kind of the, the first step to be taken? And one thing that I find interesting then is I'm assuming you didn't do a like an arts degree at university then. Like, I'm assuming this is all kind of secondary to what your line of profession. No, I'm child of the 80s, well, 70s and 80s. No, I um, arts degrees weren't really an option. Um, uh, I did an engineering degree, and actually, an engineering mind is not bad. It is not a bad place to start and look at um, our not just our history, but the way that we've written our, our our history. Because an engineer never it looks for facts and data and information, and then builds up um, a model as a result of it. And I think it's not it's not a bad place to start. I mean, I didn't have any of the kind of research disciplines that you need. And as, as now I work with 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 um like professional historians and researchers, um, you realize what a gap that is. But um no, definitely did definitely did not have that kind of background. And so everything we did, particularly in the early days, was a was an add-on to work. So one thing that I wanted to ask you, and to be honest, this is partly inspired by the, um, well, no, it's entirely inspired by the uh, webinar with Susan Strong that you guys held the other week. Um, and again, thank you for, for shouting out the podcast. Definitely appreciated that. But um, one thing that always comes up is the Susan Strong Sea Arts Exhibition 999. It seems to have had a huge impact on the Sikh landscape, especially within the UK, like, so for argument's sake, I'm sure you're more than well aware when talking to Devinder Thur, kind of 1999 was the, the spark for him, so to speak, that led to kind of a lot of what happened after that. I just wanted to know, how did you end up getting involved in that? How did that then pan out? Because obviously you guys have done a whole load of exhibitions since then, the Golden Temple one probably being my favourite, but Anyway, just putting that aside. Yeah, how did you get involved with Susan Strong and all of that? And do you think that that played a part then in your further development? Uh, yeah, definitely. You're absolutely right. It, 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 that exhibition was the catalyst for so much activity that followed. And I always find it interesting just how many people's kind of origin story start with with that exhibition in 1999 at the at the VNA. So we are Palmjit and I are like quarter generation older than Devinder. So Devinder was, I think he was like a 17 year old during that 
exhibition and sort of showing people around or at least showing them where to where to go we were a little bit older and we'd been kind of researching and gathering information we were just hoovering up anything that we could find around london as i said in auction houses markets and things so these, these were objects kind of interested in arms and armor also paintings or just anything really um and then you quickly realize when you do that you rapidly realize that actually it's what, what you're looking at are the kind of scraps on the off the table because the real gems lie inside archives um because much of our material heritage coincidentally lies in london right um it was bought over by the east india company it was war it was bought over by by company men men of the east india company or the the empire and then came back into that possession and then eventually worked its way into a national collection so by the time that the victoria and albert museum and sue were starting to kind of research start to really build up the um the research base then ultimately making their selections by the time that was kind of going on i'm going to say 97 98 something like that probably 97 um pondry and i were already working our way around the archives so this is not the public archive sometimes it's but it's um the things that they hold in reserve and one thing if, if you're if you've got credibility and you've got intent and you want to research something then the national collections are actually very very open places they're very accessible so we kind of knocked on the door of the VA and said uh can we come in and have a look at your stuff and I still don't know to this day why Sue Strong entertained us for as long as she did, but we um, we kind of we have a couple of meetings with her. We built up a really good rapport with her, and she started to throw open the doors to what was what was in the reserve collection before us. And we had a look around, and it ended up being a quite a a very well a very uh, valuable two way relationship because there were things that we could see and understand and interpret that the curatorial staff at the Victoria and Albert Museum, who have a very broad mandate, just couldn't see. So, I mean, the example I always give is, they have a Dastard Bunga. Um, it's on display, it's been on display for 20 years um, at the at the VNA. So this is a, a Nahanga Dastard. And the remarkable bit about it, of course, are all these beautifully damascened uh, quakes and there's a Dutch guy in the middle and little weapons. It's on display, kind of sitting on a little pedestal, if I remember correctly, at the foot of the uh, at the throne in the Nehru Gallery. Um, but in '99, it was in reserve, uh, and it wasn't in any any state to put out on display. But they made the decision that they were going to conserve this thing in order that they could put it out onto uh, put it into the exhibition, then ultimately put it on display. So it's another one of those great legacies from the exhibition is that new objects came came out and on display for the very first time in 100 plus years and while that was on what i think that was in con in textile conservation so they were just working on the textiles uh Pondit and i went in and talked to the team and and got a bit of an understanding about what's going on and if you if you look very carefully at that it's actually a um what the person has done who obviously brought it over is that they made a kind of a wicker a cane a substructure it's like a cone it's almost like a like an ice an upturned ice cream cone so it's quite conical if you look at it in the on display at the moment and then they just wrapped quite simply a bit a bit of um blue material over it which is stitched and then they place the quits 
on top of that, and the textile conservators are kind of scratching their chins and saying, well, so we know this is a turbo, but uh, would there have been a chin strap? Would, would this thing have sat atop, you know, this Nahung's head, and then he'd have a chin strap underneath, so they just literally couldn't see how this thing works, and they, they assumed that it was a hat of some some form. So, which of course, you know, we instantly, and I'm sure as you were listening to that, you're thinking, goodness, <laughs> that's such... Yeah, yeah. I'm giggling, thinking, like, really? But then equally, I guess, I'd like you're aware, there's that image in the Durham collections of Maharaj and Jeet Singh, and they've labelled it as Guru Tegh Bahadur So I think it, it just points to, to what you're saying, which is these guys have normally such a large collection or such a large mandate, and there's so much that they're having to um, contend with that some of these kind of nuances, unless you're part of that lived experience or have an idea, like most people wouldn't, Unless you knew how to tie the manla, you would, most people from the outside world would be like, how do you put that on your head? <laughs> so no, I can appreciate that for sure. Yeah, exactly. And the, and, and it's the partnership that unlocks all of that. And it's the general, you know, you have to have the generosity of spirit, right? From the museum to invite a couple of 20 year olds or whatever we were in to, to, to advise them on that. And actually, just to, just to close that one off, what we, what Palm and I did, I mean, we told them obviously it wasn't like a motorcycle helmet. Um, we happened to be going to Punjab like a couple of weeks later and we um there are there's a little encampment of Nehangs just outside Chandigarh and we filmed them or filmed one of them tying his the start in that manner which is actually quite an old way of doing it and nowadays of course they tie his bigger um the manu. uh but we had him tied in that manner and we videoed it and we and played that back to the museum and now suddenly now there's that institutional understanding in the museum of how these things actually work and so that was kind of just sort of like a little insight into that um that exhibition but how it worked for both of us because for us that went on to do i suppose a couple of things one was Simpson strong um really encouraging us to take our research which to that point was you know, just kind of scraping folders full of stuff that we had come across uh, and publish it. And of course, when you get something, someone like that, encouraging you to publish, you've got like a reference point and suddenly it becomes more interesting for publishers and that led to warrior things. Um, and then the other thing that happened coming out of that was the V&A had such a positive experience from that exhibition with... Um, I mean, even now, you know the audience of the V&A, you know the kind of audience it gets, kind of upper-middle-class white audience, frankly, the kind of artistic or design sensibilities. And what they were having in 99 were coach loads of six really, really engaged, a really, really engaged community that was coming to museums, sometimes for the very first time. Uh, so they wanted to sustain that. So they gave us a... Um, a, a they gave us the opportunity really to try to sustain that audience. So what we did is I think over over two years, we did a series of evening talks uh, and it was called, what was it called? Anyway, the intent of it was every, every Monday night, I'm just making this up, like every Monday night, we would have another curator from the Victorian Art Museum talking about an object we're talking about something that they did. It's very much like the seminars I do on Zoom at the moment, except it was in real life. Um, and it was it was brilliant. <laughs> Frankly, I mean, we cut our teeth on on how to organize things uh from that. So we did that for two we did that for a couple of years with them. 
And then we did a big seminar called Preserving Sikh Heritage in 2001 in the Victorian Art Museum's lecture theatre. We flew over Gurmeet Rides. First time I met Gurmeet. Who else was there? Susan Talks, Dr. Deborah Swallows Talk. Um, it was all about preserving Sikh heritage, manuscripts, material heritage, built heritage, um, touched on cultural heritage. It just brought together like a couple of hundred people that were interested in this topic. And of course, back then, back in the early 2000s, the, the particularly in India, the view, the preservation was, was comical. It was all about tearing it down and building it back up again, or, you know, famously whitewashing or putting bathroom tiles over things. So, like, for example, parading the bathroom tiles of the Babar Dal, I mean, that, that really embarrassed those. It's, it's not, yeah, I think, I think it had a big, made a big difference in um, changing the attitude in India, even about preservation of built heritage uh, as well. And, and frankly, that, that's just one example of how the arts and sick kingdoms has just had this catalyzing effect in uh, the new case. No, thank you for that. Because uh, for me, um, I think Susan Strong's Arts of the Sea Kingdom book was probably one of the first books that I kind of got hold of that just, again, blew open the the door to kind of this i don't the word real history doesn't quite make sense and and i think it, it kind of takes away from the oral tradition that we're sometimes fed but just for what lack of better word i just think that there's like a real tangible history that you can touch almost with that book and that really did help push my interest further but although this isn't the main topic of the conversation today just one thing that i wanted to pick your brain on um especially considering the fact that you guys were able to engage with the institution such as the vna and they were so positive uh in response and actually you guys in for argument's sake with the example of the the manla were able to change kind of the institutional understanding of that now it comes up time and again and it's very topical at the moment but this entire debate about museums holding these artifacts and then them being repatriated and being returned or whatever and i think you've also highlighted on the fact that india is not that great at preserving their heritage i think william dalrymple shared a uh, uh, a mandar somewhere that was being demolished and it had these frescoes beautiful beautiful frescoes in there but for someone in your position and, 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 and again i'm more than aware that there's a nuance in that not everything's stolen not everything was given for free not everything is a present like all the rest of it but like what what do you think about this entire debate and like where do you see it where would you like to see it develop like how would you like to see this positively move forward that's a good that's a really good way of framing that question because it often it isn't a very positive there isn't a, a very positive conclusion to it so that's a good that's a good question i've ever ponder about that but um yeah but I, I mean i note the conversation that you had with davinder actually about solar artifacts and i think it could a really really nice example of you know that which that which is um uh held up as being stolen heritage is anything but um, that so I, I, I thought that was a really good that was a really nice conversation but I mean I'm fundamentally if something was stubborn it should be it should be given back shouldn't it I mean I don't think anyone's well I don't debate that I think that's absolutely the right thing to do and then and then of course you're kind of agonized a little bit because I do see how artifacts are um, uh, conserved in this country not just at the big national 
collections like the V&A, but you know, regional museums. And I think, oh, crikey, I wouldn't want them going back to India or Pakistan. Um, I think mean, that's not a reason not to return them, but it's, uh, you know, it's a practicality, isn't it, Albert? Um, yeah. Just environmentally, you know, let alone like the desire of Indians to want to preserve, but just environmentally, they're just in a bad state. <laughs> So you know it's a it's a it's a debate for those very reasons, right? That you know there's a moral case, and you can often make that moral case. And um, I fall on the side that if something was stolen, it was truly stolen, then it should go back. Why, why shouldn't it? But but there's the practicalities of it, and then of course there's if you want to apply the standard of stolen, then I mean frankly, you know, take the Nur, for example. I mean books have written about how that was. Um, acquired over the years, not least of which by the six, and you could argue and that was stolen. And where does it go back to? Of all those arguments, I mean they've, they've been played out at infinitum. But I like your framing of your question about what is what what's the positive way forward to this. I, I never really yeah. um got into that whole decolonize debate. I mean I think it's right that we we look at the language that we use and oh sorry the 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 guardians of heritage, like the museums, etc., they look at the language that they use and they do it in a manner that's uh, cognizant of the, the history and the culture of, of where objects came from. It's absolutely right. If you take Sikh heritage in the UK, material heritage, I think it's fair to say, Unger, that the bulk of it lies in national collections in the UK. Right, or at least a large majority lies at the UK National Collection, but it's very scattered. It's at the British Library, it's at the VNA, it's at the British Museum, it's at regional museums. It's kind of scattered everywhere. It doesn't have sufficient mass, if you like, critical mass to warrant being on display in any one place. So you get these little bits here no, and no there. No problem. It's also fair to say that the museums are not are not as um, tooled up to be able to tell sex stories as groups like us, for example. Uh, it's not just us, by the way, but, but there are some very mature, very sort of highly credible Sikh heritage groups now. What we lack is the space and resources that they get from national government. And I would quite like us to colonize them I would quite like to get a corner of the British Museum or the Victorian Albert Museum, clear out 4,000 square feet, 5,000 square feet, 10,000 square feet, where they got, you know, 16th century Spanish floor tiles or whatever it is that they display that known. But you know, you know those galleries where people just kind of, they just kind of stroll through and they don't really pay attention. I would like to get one of those galleries and I would like to actually put on a permanent exhibition i put that permanent display there and tell the sick story through through our objects so i think actually the decolonizing debate would would it would be great if that ended with a recolonizing uh debate where where actually the museums become uh for some for some aspects of the heritage actually become um the guardians of the space as opposed to the guardians of what people get to see I like that. I really do like that response because for me, even the framing of of the of the the answer, like recolonizing the museum space, I think that's just a brilliant way of of kind of conceptualizing it. And I think, in all fairness, 
you've touched upon the kind of the nuance of this debate, which is there is a moral debate, which I don't think anyone has a question on. If it's stolen, it's stolen and needs to be returned. But I think there's a lot of practical issues in that. So again, like you alluded to the Devinder Du conversation, um, just to, to reference that, he was like, well, let's say it was made by someone in Lahore and then was gifted to someone in Amritsar and then that was like, where do you stop? So even with the Koinur, at what point do you stop and say, this is the true owner? And I think, I think you're right, which is where we can, I guess that's fine and whatever, but if there's serious questions over its kind of preservation and actually kind of recolonizing a space to provide our own history, our own kind of narrative, I think that's a really positive answer to a positively framed question. Because I think a lot of the time this debate just turns into a, the empire is terrible. We were victims at all times. Um, and yeah and i just don't feel like we ever get anywhere with it but i think that is at least at least give something to go you know what we can work with that or we can see a see kind of a positive outcome to it and there's and there's a more there's a more immediate step as, as well i mean i i always get frustrated at um the museum's response say oh we haven't got the space we haven't got the space because to display right because you know 95 99 of of objects that most museums own are in reserve they're in archive and honestly this whole repatriation thing just goes away if they were to just display but they can't they don't have the space but actually they also don't do digital projects very well in my opinion um they don't they don't research the objects really well but you and i have a <laughs> every now and again we get we see things on the internet which is misdescribed and miscatalogued and i think just correct you know being able to correct that and make it available very publicly just takes away a lot of the the heat from the repatriation debates there's nothing worse than say um yeah the nationals have this heritage but also they're keeping it secret or they're not doing anything with it so i think actually they, there's a lot that they can do to try to take some of that heat um away but it takes investment yeah, definitely. One question that got sent in by a member of the community, so to speak, was they wanted to ask during kind of all of your research, has there been anything in particular that you've come across that's changed an assumption or changed a narrative that you've had previously? So for this, uh, oh, that's a really good question. Um, I'm, uh, I, I like to think I don't have too many assumptions going into things. Palm always calls me a bit of a, bit of a cynic or sceptical. I think the, the example that I often like to use is um, Guru Gobind Singh's wife adopted a child uh, while she's in Delhi. Um, and for me, when I first read that, I was quite surprised because I, and, and then the second thought I had was, I might, if that story was more commonplace in a Punjabi Sikh household, I wonder if adoption would be as taboo as it is today. That was literally the connections I made. And I went, I wonder, because I've, I've obviously like with family, friends or whatever, they've spoken about adoption. And what I've noticed is a lot of the time, the Punjabi Sikh community kind of are like, no, like, they don't necessarily see it so positively and i just thought that story would change like automatically people's views would just change because they'd be like well hold on like if mataji did it then like what's the big deal yeah that's uh that's really interesting i probably didn't make that uh, i didn't make that connection i just find these things fascinating i always i'm always fascinated by how little i actually know that's one thing that i really love about the monday the monday night conversation that we have at the at the book club is that you have somebody on and they just open your mind to something new 
and different. And I don't find that kind of, uh, I found that like intellectually challenging, but I don't find it challenging kind of too many preconceptions. I think the work I did, we did on the First World War, um, which was the exhibition called Empire Faith War, and that went on to do to do a project, uh, to do a, a project of family histories around that. I think that was, that really um, made me think very differently about our relationship to um, the, the British state, to uh, how we kind of valorize war and valorize ourselves in that, but also just the just the practicalities of it, <laughs> just the practicalities. Of, you know, why did these young men volunteer? And they all volunteered um, to go to war because you do have and but and but and particularly as a community, we do frame um, our war experience in a particularly in a singular sort of way, and of course, the experience is much much broader than that. Which is one one of the reasons why I'm not like keen on Sikh war memorials, because they tend to have a, just a, a singular image. It's usually not a young man, usually a combatant, in fact, almost always a combatant uh, in a uniform right up on the shoulder, this sort of marching purposely forward. Well, there's one, isn't there? There's a funny one in Italy, isn't there? Where he looks like a bodybuilder and he's kind of ripping his shell. Um, so they're very masculine and they're very, very singular, whereas actually, the sick experience of war was much broader than that. It was act, it was that, it was everything that is being displayed, but it is much broader. And a hundred years later, we have the we have the great benefit of of uh, being able to reflect and hindsight and look at the, the entirety of um, the war experience, which is the families that were left behind, the impact that it had on village societies, um, the flu epidemic, which was arguably uh, exacerbated by men returning from war. Of course, Julian Wallabug happened afterwards. So there's this range of experiences in addition to, you know, these notions of valor, in addition to, you know, the great economic positive impacts that it had on people. Um, so there's, there is all of that, but then there is there are some others as well. And war memorials are pretty rubbish, in my opinion, particularly, to be really frank, sick-sponsored ones, at, at artistically trying to try to trying to reflect that. And it frustrates me quite a lot that you know a lot of community energy goes into things like memorials, and they, it doesn't go into memory. It doesn't actually go into the learning about what is it that that took place, how did it impact impact us as it continue uh to impact upon us no no definitely now one thing that it, it's just off the back of what you were talking about um and i'm just connecting dots here which is so i don't think anyone has a question that the Sikh experience of the war is obviously quite nuanced and multifaceted because i think there's a tendency often to look at history in a monolithic fashion and be like well if this happened to that person, it happened to everybody like that. That's obviously not the case. But you mentioned Julian Wallabarg and obviously the First World War being so close, kind of just, just prior to it. Now, one thing that, and I've never had the opportunity to research this, but one thing that I've always wondered is World War II was only kind of like 20 odd years after that. And it, it would still have been in living memory, so to speak. And yet there was still a huge input from 
India during the Second World War, obviously you have the INA and, and that side of things, but, but just kind of ignoring that for a second. Like, and I know it's quite a, a, a deep question, but kind of just in a, in, a, in a summary, like how was the Raj able to galvanize a population that from all intensive purposes would have been absolutely devastated after Jillian Wallabach? Yeah, good question. So whenever you... Whenever you do anything on history, like lesson number one is don't look at it through modern eyes. You've got to look at it through the eyes of people that were there at the time. And uh, yeah, and Second World War, you're absolutely right. A million and a half men went to war in the First World War. Two and a half million went in the Second World War. So what on earth is going on there? But you've got to remember, you've got to see it through the eyes of the, the young volunteers. I don't know if anyone in your family uh, went into the Second World War. People from mine definitely did. Um, if you were a village boy, every single power structure is telling you that going to war is the right thing or joining the army, sorry, is the right thing. It's just an undercurrent that, not an undercurrent, there is just, it gives you, it gives, practically it gives you salary and a pension and status, a uniform, a chance to see the world. Um, I always tell people the story of my grandfather and his brothers so this is the first world that's how old i am this is the first world war um my grandfather my dad's side four brothers right uh brother one gets married we're from a, we're not from a very you know wealthy part of the job right so brother one gets married the other three brothers they know they are never going to get married for all the reasons we know about land and stuff that it would mean splitting the land sort of meager plots of land that we had four ways never going to happen so brother one is married brother two sees the writing on the wall strapping young man he goes i'll join the army right so he joins the army ultimately goes um serves in the first world war third brother ugh, <laughs> that's not much cop doesn't fancy joining the army evidently um and becomes a bit of a sort of village dropout bit of a I think he becomes a camel trader, ultimately. He just has kind of a bachelor life, if you like. And then brother four, by the time he kind of comes of age, brother one has died, and brother four marries the, the wife of brother one. Again, not uncommon, keeping it all kind of in the family. But it's just a very common uh, experience. And when you start researching the First and Second World War, they actually, in the, in the recruitment register, they make note of where someone has has volunteered and they are the only son of a family i mean no because that's quite a remarkable kind of fact so socially um economically it's kind of valuable to join the army the army doesn't take anyone it sets quite a high bar it recruits very heavily from the punjab and so it's a position you know immense status men that come back are often you know, they've, got, they've got a pension they get status um but remember that, as I said right at the beginning, every single power structure in Punjab and in India is telling you that this is the right thing to do. Your your local, you know, your Sapanch and Lumbadar and village Panchayat and all the rest of it, they are they are economically incentivized to get young men to volunteer uh, at the district level. All of the kind of district commissioners and God knows what else. Anything that people look up to in their locale, whether they're British or salaried Indians, are telling you 
sign up. This is the right thing to do. Local, local, you know, often they get called collaborators now, but it's like the Maharajas and that nobility and the people of status. They are recruiting. We had a great big section on the Maharaja of Britain. In fact, all of the Maharajas and their recruitment, particularly during the First World War, same thing happened in the second. So what they are telling you to uh, go to all the way up to Delhi and the, and the you know, Lieutenant General of this, that and the other, are telling you to go to war. Even the only political voice or the mainstream political voice, should I say, for an Indian to look to, people like the Indian National Congress, even that they are telling you to to go to war in the First World War, Gandhi, um, Mahatma Gandhi was was an ambulance driver and was encouraging people to to volunteer, if not as a combatant, then certainly as as something like an ambulance medic. In the Second World War, they were recruited. So you have to be a really remarkable, politically sophisticated, incredibly politically sophisticated person with phenomenal political foresight. So you don't know any of these power structures are going to crumble in in 10 or 30 years, you don't know that. You just think that's the norm. That's the norm that's around you as you grow up. And you see, you have to be very politically sophisticated. You have to have political prescience, the likes of which almost nobody else has, to say this is the wrong thing to do. So, of course, you do it. And remember that both in the First and the Second World War, so let's take the First World War, because we're talking about, you know, why did they get recruited the Second uh, people don't remember. People don't know this because often the First World War is talked about in terms of loss of life. But for every hundred Indians that went to war, ninety-two of them came back. Right? So death rate was not that high. It's holiday, but it's not that high. So for most people, they would have seen these First World War veterans come back. They were salary. They'd seen the world. God knows what they did while they were out there. I'm sure they had a lot of fun. Um, but they were pensioned. They had uniforms. They would. Um, my mom tells me that in her village, there was a World War One veteran, and you know he was a little bit older, obviously, when she was a little girl. But that he would um, take a walk around the village every night, and he wore his beautiful white kurta pajama. He had a cane, and he walked with his wife around the little Sahar around the village. And she thought that was like the height, absolute height of sophistication and kind of urban, um, uh, uh, you know, progressive thinking that he walked with his wife around the village. But that's the that's what these people grew up seeing, and they kind of went, "Yeah, I want to part of that." So, is it is it any wonder that they joined? The question you should be asking is, "What what about those absolutely remarkable people that went to hell with this? Are we going to oppose it?" Because they're the real, um, they're the really remarkable ones. The ones that kind of, particularly the ones that went to, to Canada and the West Coast of the United States, and they, they thought, no, actually, I'm going to give up this life of economic success and um, rather than building a life here, I'm actually going to oppose what's going on in India and to do that in a particularly violent way. So actually... Then recruiting for you know recruiting and recruiting in large numbers in the Second World War actually doesn't surprise me in the slightest. What surprises me is are the are the people that that actually opposed it. One thing that I think I find quite interesting just recently, um, 
I got a hold of Roman Hayes' book about the INA in Germany and its relationship with the Nazis and the Axis powers. And I think one thing that I find quite interesting is, and you've actually alluded to it in relation to Sikh history, is kind of this um, black and white version of, of kind of the 20th century with it being the British are always, or, or the kind of allied forces are always right and the axis forces are always wrong and basically germany is always incorrect now i'm not before anyone misquotes me and tries to misinterpret this i'm not defending nazism i think that's obviously just unequivocally not going to happen however what i'm trying to point out is is that during the second world war the ina up until the point hitler walks into russia um is pretty much very open to getting nazi help to try to destabilize the british raj and whenever posts are made about this everyone is just automatically like oh how dare they work with hitler how dare they do this how blah 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 and i think you hit it on the head which is like we view it from a modern lens and we're viewing it from what like 70 years uh, of hindsight we know we know things about hitler and the final solution and everything else that happened that people at that time just wouldn't even had a clue about let alone um indians turning up in germany during the height of the second world war and and i think another thing that i find quite interesting and, and again it nuances the tale even further is is that bose was after hitler to actually edit his mind camp to remove the parts where he basically ridicules indians now i just find that quite interesting on a, on a separate note that, that during the height of this global warfare the INA are more concerned about what Hitler has to say in his book than actually anything else um but yeah there's this always there's always this kind of reaction to it as though it's intrinsically good or intrinsically bad and I think just as you've pointed out there are various and almost kind of this huge cultural force that is kind of pushing you in a certain direction and you're right you'd have to have the political foresight or the the kind of the, the knowing of what's about to happen i think that most people just wouldn't um or, or just you no one would to be fair um but yeah i, I just think it's it's incredible how how kind of nuanced and interesting it gets um especially with how black and white that kind of history especially in the uk is taught so um i i, I was obviously taught the second world war during gcse and a level and you always hear about the kind of the allied version of events but it's really interesting to to see the the indian version of events i guess for want of better words which is basically hitler had agreed that when i say agreed he had essentially written down that he was looking to invade india at one point if if invading russia had gone well and i just think things like that just changed the narrative automatically because you're like what well, i like i always just thought hitler was bothered about europe or whatever the case might be um i know we've gone off on a tangent but it's just to try and point out that it's not ever as black and white i think as as a lot of people make it out to be and hindsight is a wonderful <laughs> wonderful wonderful thing yeah exactly I mean, I, yeah it, i agree with everything that you've just said um i i think the other the other point is you said you know in in the uk when you were talking about history you didn't learn about the indian side etc i always find it interesting with india like modern india what they are taught in in history because that whole of their historic history kind of syllabus at, at school age not not so much afterwards but at school age is done through the lens of independence of some form or the other so um there's a lot on there's little on muggle the for the muggles but there's much more on the opposition to them to the muggles as ineffective as it was for 
until it kind of implemented. Um, or it's about, um, you know, this is why we have this debate about the 1857 uprising versus mutiny. Um, and the, the mutiny or uprising is is framed in terms of, you know, the first war of independence. That the Second World War is framed in terms of the INA. And these are less... And, and so with India, they have this very jaundiced view, I think, of 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 history. I suppose we all do. We all carry some 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 biases, don't we? Um, but I think the way that it's taught there is just it, it's it's, not, it's different and damaging in its own way. So one question that I just want to ask in relation to all of this before we move the conversation on is um, how instrumental do you think the British martial race theory was in ensuring Punjabis volunteered in the numbers they did, or am I again trying to connect? perhaps something that's slightly too distant from the reality because i think looking back with hindsight it's quite easy to read things and be like oh you can see how they're kind of demarcating sikhs or however they're um kind of defining us but again i guess you you alluded to how the british army had a kind of a a standard which you had to pass so again even just that would have kept some people out but again just coming back to the martial race theory like how influential do you think that was but I think it, it did have a massive bearing on it. And so you know that that, it, it didn't have a massive bearing on the fact that, or the reason why there are so many Siddiqs in the Indian army at the beginning of the first, second world, world war, um, because they took it, the Brits took it really seriously. Uh, so they, they only recruited from, those particular classes, Sikhs, Rajputs, Punjabi Muslims, Gurkhas, etc., etc., and of course that goes back to the uprising in 1857. In 1857, the army didn't. The army recruited basically for one class, which is the high, upper class or high class Hindus. So there's a sense of kinship that runs through the hundred thousand, two hundred thousand men, which is a really dangerous place to be if you're if you're ruling India and you are outnumbered. 2000 to one you know white men to to indians and the, the ratio is something like that i think it is in the 1850s um it's really dangerous that your your sword arm is being held by a hundred thousand men all of all of whom have exactly the same religious sensibilities it is much more valuable uh it's much sorry it's it's really strategically important that they don't have a sense of kinship with each other uh so the martial racist theory both does this slightly nonsense thing where it says some people are manly and uh masculine and well suited for recruitment like Sikhs, like the Japanese muslims but what it's also doing is it's fracturing indian society in a way that's uh, making sure that um and this is very clever of course this takes deep understanding of how how the different religions and different types of people interact so that they they never actually they could never gang up there's no there is no universe within which a Sikh and a Baluchi Muslim will um will kind of partner up on a religious debate it just isn't going to happen so the the thing that led to 1857 which was this this rumor they had been true that the cartridges were greased with pork or beef, beef fowl, whatever it was. Um, that's just not going to ripple through. That type of thing is just not going to ripple through an army which is fractured by uh, down religious lines. Uh, what's also interesting, and, and you know, we may we may go back to 
more stuff at some point is um their their very deep understanding of caste and the use of it in the army as a uh a motivational tool if you like but also or a morale to talk morale but also as a tool of um also something to be very very wary about because you couldn't have for example a, a quote unquote no caste person in a commanding role over quote unquote higher caste people and they're super conscious of that and they, they know precisely how to engineer things um to to avoid those sorts of things happening no thank you so a lot of people and currently i've had a conversation and a debate with a few people about this but it often comes up that there's this narrative that the martial race theory was quite instrumental in almost reconstructing the Sikh martial identity in a way that had uh, taken its sources of sovereignty coming from the Guru to being from a nation state figurehead. So in this case, it's the Queen or the King or whatever. I think it's a very complex topic and a debate and there's obviously lots of nuance to this but the the kind of the, an argument that's put forward is that this martial race theory has almost been internalized to a point now where Sikhs are almost unable to distinguish between their own sovereignty and martialness granted via the guru and a sovereignty provided by a temporal authority in this case uh, the nation state the head of the nation state now for someone who has researched and worked in the area that you have and obviously what world war one is is kind of the main topic that that we want to stick to today is like what are your thoughts on that and how like how do you like what are your perceptions of that really i don't think there's too much debate that in the large part six have kind of internalized their um their role in you know national armies as being a being a um manifestation of the kind of martial tradition that we have which starts from the time of the good I, I don't think that's i think that's evident like we, we see it in the kind of again this valorizing of men in uniform and that can clearly the british have a lot to do with that there's a really lovely because i lovely there's a really interesting quote from i think it's mccann who wrote, writes a book called armies of india he says without the british army or without the indian army sorry um sikh traditions would not have survived words to that effect and these are khalsa traditions would not have survived because of course to be in the indian army you had you had you, you couldn't just be like a regular sikh you had to be a sikh who was baptized or you know initiated sorry the identity the, the identity the participation in um nations army particularly the indian army uh, and that's been kind of merged, if you like, with the sort of notions of martial spirit, not entirely, but in the main, I think that's true. Uh, is that right or wrong? Is that, I mean, that's what I think where the debate tends to go. I tend to not get too involved in the, the whole judgment call that goes with it. Um, but I don't think it's eclipsed it, right? I, I still think at the same time, you, you know, even at a very sort of facile, sort of simplistic level, things like Hula um, Mahalla, which is, you know, a bit of a, it's a little bit of a kind of Dalasha, isn't it, sometimes? But even that, you know, that is still a, a, a demonstration of Sikh martial traditions. I think the sad thing is, is that, isn't that it's been co-opted by 
by army. So I don't think that really is the, I don't think that's a major issue, actually. I think the sad thing is just that we, um, well, should I say the opportunity is, <laughs> we should learn more about what that martial tradition is. And I think it's, and you've been previewing a few little things from the dancing, for example, which I found quite interesting because I think that's the route that that goes out. You realize just how, we, we realize just how um, disconnected we've become from it. Your conversation with Kamaru, I found really fascinating as well, because the Dustin Grant is almost a, um, you know, in parks anyway, is so much about articulating the martial traditions of the Sikhs, of the Gudusori, and yet we're so disconnected to it, so much so that we've almost discarded I think that's the issue, less so about whether men in uniform are are being seen as or big tabbed as um, the Sikh military tradition. So I don't really see that. Now, interesting what we did, what we from a historical perspective, what we did in our re republishing of Warrior Saints. So when we we redid that in two volumes, second volume TBA, um, is that. The first volume, which takes you from the times of the Gurus right the way up to the end of um, Sikh sovereignty in the Punjab, so right up to the Second Anglo-Sikh War in 1849, that book is jacketed with this wonderful portrait of a Nihang who kind of typifies the, the native, if you like, Sikh military tradition, and then the second volume, when it comes out, we'll have um, a portrait, that lovely portrait that we used on the 1999 edition of um, the retired army subadar uh, Nihal Singh, uh, who's wearing this kind of you know army getup and the, this tartan turban, and that re and that and that takes you from the period 1849 onward, which is dominated by uh, the Sikh's role in the the Indian Army and various other um, military endeavors, running right the way through that is this constant thread of people like the Nahangs, uh, who who keep alive that tradition um, right the way back through the time of the Gurus. Just on a quick side note, the the 1999 version of the Warrior Saints book that you, that you guys published, uh, I remember I, I was really young at this time probably like 10 or 12 <clears throat> my mum had bought a copy of it and we had we had gone to our Gutgar class that day and I don't know why but mum had left it at the back of the room and by the end of the class it had disappeared so we, we never got that copy back but the other month I think think maybe a few months ago I, I saw a copy of it come up for auction on a on an online website and it was going for like 50 quid so I thought fine perfect put my bid in the auction went live it eventually sold for 300 quid and i was just sat there going oh god like that's insane but equally it goes to demonstrate how valuable that book is and and and, and the stuff that you put out but um just a couple of things then on this conversation i think you i think you're correct in highlighting that we are very distanced from our from the dust and gun for argument's sake or from certain traditions like fasted video i would probably argue that the process of that happening and again a lot of this understanding actually comes from the the work that you guys have done or the exhibitions that you guys have put on which is like so for argument's sake uh making arms the the arms act which made it illegal for not just nahangs but nahangs included to be carrying shasta and everything that goes along with that is almost 
parallel to this, for want of a better word, colonization through the army for argument's sake. So for me, I, I would almost be like, well, they're, they're like two sides of the same coin. Um, I think you're correct in that the Nahangs and certain um, Sampardas or school of the old thought uh, have continued this on. But um, I guess just to add some historical nuance to this, Guru Gobind Singh Ji's some of Guru Gobind Singh Ji's Sikhs fought in Bahadur Shah's army. Uh, according to pretty much all pre-colonial texts, Guru Gobind Singh Ji actually fought in a battle alongside Bahadur Shah, which for me is pretty insane. Um, <clears throat> on top of that, just as Singh Ram Gurya was employed by the imperial forces whilst he was whilst he was alive, and again he got loads of his colleagues and Sangat essentially jobs in the army because he knew it paid well. And actually, I think he was able to pretty much use the the system he was part of to to get a siege removed i can't remember exactly the details but um again being part of the system isn't necessarily always a bad thing however the the, the kind of the modern debate that gets thrown up is the location of which your sovereignty comes from and i guess that in itself is 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 a debate which we could be here all day with um there's a notion of some so sovereign versus separate. Yeah, it's all, it's all, right? yeah. Sovereign just means you're in control yourself, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But then I guess how far do you take that? Because for I say, even if you say, okay, well, being part of the army, you're not sovereign because you're fighting someone else's war. And again, we don't need to necessarily highlight some of the atrocities these armies have been part of. But then like, even, all right, let's say you don't get you don't take part in the army but then you're still not sovereign like you're still part of that system you can't like how far can you take yourself out of that so i think equally the debate is needed but then i the practicality of that is something that i'm like well how, like how do you how are you able to ever influence and change anything if you're not kind of going to either work from within so to speak yeah I, um yeah possibly I was also I was struck um I think two things just struck me when when you were talking is one is that you know you said the atrocities that those modern armies have committed I um <laughs> have you have you studied any of Ant Prakash yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and it's gruesome <laughs> it's 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 gruesome but that is real I right? you these are what these men had to do in battle it's uh I'm not by no means a scholar of it but um, you know, there's a very, I get again, the very polished, sanitized version of Sikh history where <laughs> men can now guessily come across their kind of stride forward and strike down the Mughals, and it's all known that very quickly and almost bloodlessly. And but the reality is, is that, that you know, 1879th century battle is pretty gruesome stuff. Um, and the other thing that struck me was Javala Singh's brilliant Suraj Prakash um, uh, exposition on this podcast, um, which I think is just called Sundar, isn't it? The Sundar podcast. That thing is extraordinary for all kinds of reasons, one of which is this kind of then the intertwining between the Sikh Gurus and the Mughal state. And I mean, there are times in it where I just died, like, I literally don't understand why. Um, it, sorry, that that is the one that really kind of undermines my understanding of how the the politics played out between the Sikh court and the Mughal, the court of the Mughal emperor. Um, but I just think it's it's extraordinary. I think it's much more complicated than than the debate is often framed, right? Which is you know good and bad. 
sovereign. Sovereign often in that in that debate often means, as I said, separate. And I don't think sovereign means separate at all. No, I, I think I would disagree. And again, this is also why I enjoy asking these type of questions to the people like like yourself that we get on this podcast because we all know it's not black and white. But to 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 kind of explore the nuance and uh, kind of see what people in your position with kind of your research and everything else that goes with it really does help i think inform the conversation or the arguments that then can like will continue basically because i think a lot of the time people are putting forward and chiming in and it's coming from like the best of places but it's not necessarily as well informed as i think it can be so again i, I can only appreciate um you you answering that as well so no thank you um just something then that someone had asked um and again we've we've kind of just gone off on a, on a bit of a tangent but just coming back to this then is um when you first started out with your research and again you said it was kind of university that after reading kushwan singh's uh two volume uh seek history of the sikhs like you kind of got the bug did you ever expect to take it to where you guys have publishing these books, putting on these exhibitions, um, inspiring people like myself and everything that goes with it. Did you ever, when you're at university, be like, I want to take it to this level or whatever? Like, how, did you ever expect to get here? Uh, there's a really short answer to that, isn't there? Which is no. <laughs> um, no, no, absolutely not. I, I think, you know, when you when you write and publish your first book, as, as you've probably found, you think you've hit the peak um, and that's it, you're done kind of thing and then and then you just keep going on the journey and, and here i think the biggest driver the biggest kind of inspiration for that the motivator for all of that is punk is my relationship with punjit saying that because he um i think he's he is just extraordinary he is he's a researcher the likes of which i've never come across it connects uh evidence and clippings and pictures in a way that constantly blows even now constantly blows my mind but he has something else as well and i think this is where he's probably a generation ahead of himself or maybe two generations ahead of himself he pushes the boundaries of what we do and how we do it as well so transitioning from writing a book to then doing that golden temple exhibition that's him that's palm completely in fact I think if you turn the clock back to the conversation where he told me that, I would have been saying, uh, no, that sounds like a stupid idea. <laughs> um, but Palm has this kind of vision, has this, he can see things that often we can't. And then constantly kicking the quality standard upward, not never accepting what we do as being of good enough quality, always just pushing it a bit further, even if that means kicking out a deadline, even if that means delaying something for a bit longer, but always pushing out. And I think the mark of that is not just our work, actually, which I'm really proud of and I think has had, you know, has had a great impact. And when I say our, I mean the team that's that, that does this, because often people like Palmer really get a lot of credit for the work of a lot of other people. Um, but it's also had, I think, has had a galvanizing effect inside the sick world as well. I mean, I always, I just, I just think the fact that there are so many um, new books coming out now that they just were not in existence in back in, you know, the nineties, um, is to do with the Kashi House and what was built there. The fact that um, the sick, if you wind back the clock to the nineties, uh, we. 
if there was anything done with Sikh history, it would be done inside the context of a Gurdwara. It's not a bad thing, but it's very internal to the Sikh community. And it was done within our own resources, stuff that was within the community kind of brought together and being displayed. There was a guy from Coventry called Janan Singh Jan who would um, go and go to Gurdwara and he had this sort of exhibition. Um, and the fact now that it is so much more about engaging with collections, it's so much more, you know, the Leicester Museum will have something that kind of goes up. Um, I guess a lot of that is to do with Panjit and what he's done with Akfra and Kalshi House, with the public exhibitions, with obviously the publishing program um as well i mean it's been an he's an extraordinary individual i don't I, I would i would love for you to do a podcast with him but he's always really um he likes his work to do the speaking for him uh, so good luck with that one well i was actually going to ask you at the end of the podcast if i could get his contact details and i'm going to try and bug him really because the tour has again obviously alluded to how instrumental because i did the, the cousins and how instrumental banjit is and then obviously yourself um one question that i got sent in in relation to the warrior saints book and and i'm kind of glad that you touched upon the images why did you pick that image because basically the person who sent in the question goes when i first saw this book the image basically just jumped out and slapped me in the face he goes it was absolutely just mind-blowing to see this and so he wanted to know what considering obviously you had such a wide range of images you could have picked from why that one in particular and why such a kind of close zoomed in image of it <laughs> now this is how you can get Panjit on your podcast Ahmed ask him about that jacket image because you've got an hour of conversation there which will be fascinating and riveting um so I'll try not to give too much of that away but I think if you just ask him just about that image I think it's a there's a real story there um why that well so first of all just the idea of having a two-volume work which the first volume is from the period of the Gurus to the end of Sikh Raj in the Punjab in 1849. And exemplifying that, or sorry, exemplifying that the Sikh martial tradition in that in that period you know, has to be a Sikh from uh, the kind of very archetype of, of the Sikh martial um uh, sort of manifesting the Sikh martial tradition. So, you know, a great picture of a Nahan just makes absolute total sense. And then the second volume, as I said, is more of that kind of formalized, you know, he's a, he's a guy, he's a retired super dog major from the Indian hub. It's also artistically a very beautiful picture. But that first jacket image, which, um, I mean, it's, it is striking and the eyes draw you in. And so it, it is just an arresting photograph which is always it was buried as a double page spread i think in the 1999 edition but when you got to it, it always made you pause and it's interestingly it's part of the series i think of photographs of people from um the deccan region hyderabad and there are a couple of nehums that were photographed um by the same photographer there's another one which is an old an older an older nehung and i think in the 99 one we put them across two pages, but it, it, it is by striking. It's it exemplifies that that tradition, and you can absolutely pick it apart. In fact, I think in the caption, <laughs> been a long time since I looked at it. Um, Palm just probably done most of the work there. We're just pulling apart all of the different weaponry that he has on his person, uh, which is again 
really interesting. But just that the image is just such a striking one. We always absolutely loved it. Han will tell you that's like part of his origin story in terms of how he got there. But I'll tell you another little interesting follow-up story to that, which is that we just knew this as a, um, I think it was captioned sick, Hyderabad, and it was... Um, take, we need the photographer's names. It was often the case with Indian photographs. You know more about the, the white dude that took the picture than the person in it. Um, but I think it's a Hooper photograph, if I remember correctly. Um, but then about, about, I think it was in the year 2000, I was in New York for a family, for a wedding. And I took, um, I took like a couple of hours off while my wife was shopping. And I said, I, I just need to go do something. I went to the, the collection of the Alkazi collection, so in New York. So Alkazi was a Ibrahim Alkazi was a collector of um, nineteenth century Indian photographs, and he had he had his collection there in in New York City in Manhattan. And um, we had built a bit of a relationship up with him in London. So I went into the collection and said, "Pull me out all of the sick stuff that you had." And of course, it wasn't catalogued, so you just had to go through boxes and boxes. I had like one hour to do it. And in looking through that, this image, this photograph pops up, um, which I was in a, just a random box called, I think, the Deccan. And it is a picture of four or five figures, four or five Nehung figures, posed very stylistically as you would in a, in a painting. But obviously a photograph is taken of them. And one of them is our man, Mad Eyes, as, as Pondit calls him, from the jacket of the book and he's standing there in in profile uh full length and that photograph is the one that's gone onto the jacket of um in the master's presence so we build up you know every time if you if you see enough of these things i think i've been doing the same the same thing once you've seen like you know a million pictures then you you stop you're able to make those connections and you're able to kind of see what's see what's what no, no, definitely. Now, what goes into producing one of these books then? Because obviously, like in the introduction, we alluded to, well, I, I picked on two that I think have been really instrumental, Warrior Saints and the Golden Temple book. In the Master's Presence, again, is an, is an amazing book. And I would, I'm not going to say too much about that because obviously I spoke to Nadal about it and it was really, really interesting to, to get his um, input on that. But yeah, what goes into producing these books? Like how many hours of, re like, well, not hours, months of research goes into them? Like, what is the kind of the process? Um, and again, you guys have got Warrior Saints Volume 2 coming out soon. Um, and I'm also wanting to question Palm Palmjit about Master's Presence Volume 2, because I asked Nadad and again, he said you need to ask Palmjit. So um, I feel like he's the man with all of the, with all the information. But no, just from your perspective, what goes into producing these books and what is it like doing that? So let's take, they, I mean, none of them are typical. Everyone's got its own story, right? Um, but if you take the Golden Temple of Amritsal, it's big anthology of every image that we could find between i think the earliest ones from the the 1800s uh all the way up to 1960 i think 1959 i think it was cut fat that, that was a that was in a sense the research for that was done over 20 years because if you are looking for you know visual heritage of the six you come across the harmanda saab and amritsa all the time to such an extent you get a little bit dull to it, you go oh, another another photograph, another painting, another you know cloth label or whatever, which has got um, the Hamandasab depicted on it. Um, and the discipline of 
logging them away and archiving them and making sure you can kind of understand key bits of information. That was kind of done over 20, 20 years. By the time we came to that ex that idea of the exhibition, it just seemed really obvious. I think Palm Joe had a big part to play on that to say, well, why don't we write the authoritative, um, I'm not trying to sound arrogant here, but the, the kind of canonical book showing every image that we can of the Hamandasa, every, um, and, and Amritsa and its surroundings, try to tell the story of that place in the way that we would, and also accompany it with all of the observations that people have made as travelers, as pilgrims, as colonial administrators, whatever, through, through the history of, to the history of it being in existence. Uh, so, you know, massive undertaking and by no means the work of two people. Um, look, look really carefully at the acknowledgements in that book because you will see a team in there, um, some of whom you probably know, some of whom that you probably see in our exhibitions. Um, and if I start naming them, I know I'll miss some out. But that that team, that Upfer Kaji House team, really do a lot of the, the heavy lifting because then converting what is a an archive of images and quotes into active green into a book with the discipline of knowing where you've sourced every image from that you've got high risk quantum image all that pra boring practical stuff um all of that heavy lifting is done by this very dedicated volunteer team um you know brilliant absolutely brilliant in their own rights uh that that really kind of do most of the heavy lifting for that and then people at palm and i get to put our names at the front of it um we we kind of split the work two ways i tend to do the writing he tends to do the image research a lot for the captioning and the kind of pulling it together um so curating it if you like and then i'll i'll do more of the the kind of you know the, that introductory essay or the, the some of the captions or whatever um but no just a, like it's a massive group undertaking warrior saints the warrior saints reprint exactly the same uh well sort of janine one of was a little bit more of palm jet and i like again i did the writing it's much of the picture research but kim wagner is the third hidden hand in that book because of course he wrote the i think the authoritative history on the massacre in 1919 so each one is different each one is is more than the work of uh, the two of us roughly then from say you were to start the project today how long does it normally take to print then uh well the, the practicalities of getting something let's say we were talking today and we were like oh let's do warrior saints volume three I mean, like me... roughly how long would that take to be produced as a book so the longest the longest bit is the re the research right and if in a sense, we're always we're always researching. So I have this kind of like secret plan to write the the authoritative biography of Maharaja Ranjit Singh. And in a sense, I'm researching it now. I kind of don't know I'm doing it, but you'll pick up little bits of information. Um, I was looking through Umdata Dauri earlier, earlier this month um, and saw a few things and quickly you know, scanned them and logged them away because I think they'd be interesting on its own. In many respects, the research is the long bit, but 
But if you've been at the game for a long time, it's always it's kind of there in the background, um, building up. And then actually the compiling of it is, you know, it's a uh like the fast the far the, the Johnny Warren book bug book came together quite quickly having done the work on it. But but Kim did a lot of heavy heavy lifting on helping us structure that for the other books could take a year or so. Um, and getting them into print is actually a, actually could take even longer because it's a, I mean, frankly, it's just about, you know, whether you've got the means to be able to, particularly for Kashi House, you've got the means to be able to publish them. If, if the Kashi House books were flying off the shelf so quickly that the cash was being recovered, you could then plow it into the next, the next project. Um, you'd see a whole lot more coming out of publishing houses, not stars, but um, other publishing houses as well. Unfortunately, unfortunately, the community isn't very good at buying books, frankly. Um, and so it's, uh, yeah, it's a tough, tough. So we had this funny experience after we did Warrior Saves, which we thought was a real success. It's back in 99. We went back to our publisher, IB Taurus, and we said, hey, how about another one? We'll do something, you know, how about the next book? We must have had a list of things that we wanted to do. And they kind of went, mm, we dipped our toe into the sick market. It's not really there. There isn't really a, a good sick book buying market. We think the sick market for new Western produced books is worth about £10,000 a year. And that's just not sustainable. That's not, that's not good. This is back in 99, around 2000. And, and if you go back then, there were only like, you know, two, three, four mainstream sick books being published a year. Obviously, ninety nine there was this big splurge of stuff, but generally speaking, there really are there wasn't that much going on, and six are just not particularly um, avid buyers. In fact, Warrior Saints, a lot of them got bought by military historians, right, Western military historians, um, and it was really I felt really dejected. It's like you can't, you, of course, you can't run a business and who helps a pound sales a year and by coincidence, I bumped into a friend of mine uh, who I worked with at work in the Middle East and white guy, and he had turned his hand to car number plates, you know, personalised number plates. And he said, he said, that is worth, this is back in 99, he goes, the sick number plate business is worth hundreds to 200,000 pounds a year. It's worth 10 times that. He goes, everyone trading number plates knows all of the sick surnames. The girls, the Gadowals, the Sundus, Sindus. They know more because they know once they've got one, it's like gold dust, right? Um, if they can kind of, you know, finagle the, the numbers and letters to try to look like a sex surname, they know they're a business. And I thought, that's the, I've got to tell you everything you need to know about the world where we're operating. Yeah. Do you think that it's a similar situation still today or do you think there's like a change in the attitudes because i think for argument's sake there's a like do you think the few like the generations that have come kind of after you guys have perhaps taken more of an interest because i think we're perhaps more detached from that experience yeah it's something that, i mean the generations change as well don't they and people people are more professional and they got a bit more money in their pocket and they kind of want to do it but um it's it's not it's not an easy sell. We we should have as a community in this country, we should have a very active cultural industry of all kinds of 
cultural output, whether that's exhibitions or books, film, uh, you know, novels, whatever. We should be leaning on the door of the Netflixes of this world, which is much more popular culture, of course. You, you, you do that from a basis of having great books. And this is this is Palmjit's argument. This is this is why he's he's created this thing called Kashi House. All great cultural output, particularly popular culture, comes from great research, great books. It all does. But that we can't seem to get <laughs> like a real output. That we that we don't have. Um, we're four hundred thousand six in this country. If one out of every hundred of those, all it takes, one out of every hundred, buys a book when it comes out, whether it's Yukonchi House or one of the mainstream publishers, you you would have a, a thriving industry, but we are not anywhere near that. People like you, and probably the people that listen to this podcast, are frankly weirdos. Yeah, yeah. We are the point one percent. Um, frankly, our as a community, we haven't quite matured enough yet. There's still, if you had a podcast or personalized plates, I bet you'd do a lot better than you would. <laughs> or or six and football or something. I bet you could do a lot more in numbers um, than you're doing it. We haven't quite matured to that level. The race, though, is between us as a community kind of maturing into those cultural pursuits. Actually, it's not, I'm not doing high culture here talking interpretive dance or anything like that and say books um and levels of interest because the generation below me is it, it's got all kinds of other things that's interested uh and it's much less connected to its its uh sick origins like my kids i have to work a little bit harder at than than i did they 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 have fewer of the language skills they don't go to india quite so often we used to but those sorts of things yeah i often have this discussion with my dad actually and i'm like i work because um i've got two little nieces and i often have a conversation with my dad and i'm like i find it really interesting because dad was born in kenya and then came over in the 70s with uh, my grandma and then we're all born here and i was like it's going to be interesting when this i would like to, to my father I was like when your generation's gone because you guys are almost the last bridge between a different view perspective understanding of things and then being british quote unquote and i was like even my grandma's generation like there's very few of them around and i think for me they are like the last connection between and again i don't mean to romanticize it but like that old understanding and, and everything that comes with that and i think and and to be honest a lot of the debate that i have with my dad about like how do we kind of continue to ensure we can pass on the learnings and the teachings that we've gained from my grandma or my father or whoever um and partly that's kind of why i started doing the podcast because i was like how can i kind of how can i further my understanding to ensure that i can then kind of further someone else's in this case my niece is at the further their understanding and help them figure out what's going on in this crazy world um but it, it, it's just crazy really how um how you've mentioned that the sea community are far more interested about number plates than they are about their history and i think that says it that just says everything we need to know and you're right i've had conversations with my with my own brothers about buying number plates to be honest we're probably slightly atypical in that we're not that bothered about our second names but private number plates are certainly something that even in my own family uh dad's got yeah dad's got a private plate um my uncle's got a private plate 
my auntie's got a private plate yeah yeah so yeah you're you're definitely on the book i also know your family has books as well so you, you're off the book yeah 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 yeah, <laughs> yeah 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 no that's a that's a fair balance so i'm i'm a, that's a really interesting point you made. i did a podcast with uh sushma jatsari of the british um museum a few weeks ago and um we were talking about memory and this idea of sort of gen- you know losing the memory of generations and things and we kind of uh happened across this pro- we always like developed a project in that podcast and that was something that we we called play just sorry press record which is this idea that we are having those really interesting intergenerational conversations and but we don't record them so everyone's got a phone on them just press record when you have that when you have that conversation with your grandmother or for me it'd be my mom um which isn't which isn't about you know let's go to Costco tomorrow, but it's the conversation that's about the family history, life in the bin, the the the, the reminiscence type um, conversation. And we thought if we could kind of give some structure to that, because the technology already exists in everyone's hands, but some structure around what are some good questions to ask? How how do you make sure that you get the best answer out of there? What are some of the guidelines? Uh, and we do that very targeted to. South Asians in this country, uh, I think you pick up some phenomenally valuable archival material for the future, right? So this is the generation that maybe didn't live through partition, but certainly lived through the, the bit after it, certainly had memories of um, what partition did to the Punjab. Uh, and then, of course, their story of coming to this to this country and settling in and setting up and everything, and that will all be gone. Um, it's rapidly going um, so I, I think that that would be um, that would be really that, that's a really interesting project I'm quite keen on just pushing social media to see if we can do something on that no it sounds brilliant and I think it's a very modern and practical way of just ensuring we to some extent can preserve that memory and that understanding um, I know for one Thing we requested my grandma to record her when she does her nickname just record the entire thing um and so just little things like that like i think it's 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 just yeah it's just a brilliant way of, of keeping a connection to that I, I i think that's i think that's brilliant and i think just being able to spread that out as a practice i think would i think that would reap benefits the other thing i think um this is my very optimistic view um is that i think once in everyone's life, even the most sort of disconnected uh, sick, right? I think once in their life, they have a moment. It's usually when they have kids or when they go to university. It's like these life-changing moments, right? That they want to reconnect. They want to understand the heritage. They go, why am I here? <laughs> why am I here not pushing a plough in Punjab? Or why am I here? And I want my, I want my kids at least to have some appreciation. And it's and and it's like a little voyage of of interest that goes on. And if you can feed if people like us can feed that with good content, whether it's you know online or the books or whatever, um, I think you can kind of you could you you could just you could feed it, and perhaps you can even nurture it, and you can turn it into something that's more than just like a fleeting interest. Um, and I think that what the, the really positive thing is that there's just a lot of material around at the moment, things like your podcast 
uh, things starting to appear on YouTube in, in a professional manner. But I think you ha they, they have to be done. Remember what you're doing when you're trying to get to people's eyeballs or into their ears is that you are competing with everything else that's trying to get on in front of them or get into their ears. So you've got to you've got to do this at the standard of you know the Netflixes and the BBCs of this world. That's really challenging without resources. No, no, definitely. Um, another question that someone sent in was in relation to to the books, and I I found it quite interesting because I think for someone who's had experience doing a history degree, um, one thing with narratives and historical viewpoints is, is they're constantly developing. And for me, um, I think I'm quite honest in that I'm more than happy to change my conclusion on some evidence. Um, and I have to admit that the books that you guys have produced, I don't necessarily think put forward a particular narrative, but putting that aside, the question was essentially, how do you ensure you balance the evidence you guys have in the books you produce and then add the narrative with kind of developing theories that may kind of, I guess what he's trying to get to is that at some point that developing theory may make what you guys have produced redundant to some degree. So, so how do you balance those two? Yeah, it's a really, it's a really interesting question. Um, and I think by narrative, it, he or she means sort of biases, right? Or, or, or your kind of... Uh, I think just kind of like the overall conclusion of the, of the, um, of the book. So I don't, personally, I couldn't actually think of a, an example from the, the two for argument's sake that I quoted at the beginning of, of the podcast, but, um, I guess it'd be like, I don't know, saying... Or, I don't know, be like saying Maharaj Jeet Singh Ji is the perfect Sikh for argument's sake. And then actually you figure, you, you go and read that he had uh, alcohol so strong that the British called it the devil's breath. And you're like, well, how do those two fit together? Yeah. So, I, I mean, I, again, it's going to sound really, if it, it, it sounds arrogant, I apologize. It's not to be arrogant, but it's like the search for authenticity has always been our kind of watchword, always, always real, always quote unquote true. And um, I'm, but also really conscious that everyone has. Biases and everyone has like a, you know some viewpoint um, that comes out, but we try really hard not to, right? Um, and I think part of that is is Palmjet and I are quite different in the way that we that we work. So Palm is I, I take kind of a bit about engineers, a bit of a Westerners sort of viewpoint. I want to see evidence, right? I want to see something written down um, somewhere, some something broadly contemporaneous. Otherwise, it you know, it can just be fairy stories. Panjit takes a slightly different view about it. He values oral history much more, right? Particularly when it comes from good sources. Um, I kind of slightly turn my nose up at that sort of stuff sometimes. I don't think a really lovely story, but this goes back, oh, I can't even remember, 10 years, 12 years ago, something like that. Um, I was just doing like a copy edit on In the Master's Presence. Uh, so this is just like a read through just cleaning up bits of English and a few other things. And there's a, there's a, you see, you know, the story of when Guru Gobind Singh Ji meets, um, Madaldas, the, the, the man who goes on to become Bandhapadra. And the story they tell, which they had sourced from, um, an old Nihang that they met in Hazur Sabri. It's actually not an uncommon telling, but it's that, um, the Guru goes to the camp. Mandaldas isn't there, and the and, and the guru um what does he do? He sits on his um on Mandaldas's kind of dais, you know, his throne for a better word, 
and he tells his men, slaughter the goats, <laughs> we're going to eat, right? And of course, Madal Das is a Vashnabite, so he's a, he's a vegetarian. And so this is, a, this is an act of, you know, phenomenal, um, uh, this is quite a violent act, right? And, and then Madal Das comes back and blah, blah, blah. But that bit where the Guru is said to have gone into the encampment and um, told, told his men to slaughter the goats just felt very wrong to me. It was, just a guy, it was like an old Nahum telling story. Right? And it further goes on to say, um, not only was this an act of kind of you know, violence against Madal Das and of course the goats, um, but it was also, because it was an auspicious day, it was like a complete sacrilege to have done this, to, to slaughter those goats. And the auspicious day was, it was because it was going to be a, there was a solar eclipse, um, which astronomically, you know, auspicious. And I said to Palm, I remember writing to him, and I, actually I was in a hotel in Italy because I was working, um, I wasn't working in the UK, and I, I messaged him and I said, Palm, you can't put this in. <laughs> you, at the very least, at the very least, you've got to say, you know, Sikh tradition, sorry, a, a, a Sikh tradition source of, of this school says this. At the very least, you've got a caveat it, right? And I, and then I went, like, but actually, if if we can prove that a solar eclipse didn't happen, then you can kind of undermine this story completely. Um, because the solar eclipse would have to have happened in a very thin window of time, because we know exactly when the Guru arrived in um, Nandir, and we know when he died, and so it must have happened between those two months, and it had to be visible, obviously, from central India. And I said, if we could prove that in the year of 1708, then you can say whether this story's got any legs or not. So if I start Googling around historical solar eclipses, da, da, da. anyway, I'll cut, I'll cut a long story short. That night, I remember I called a couple of places in America and I got bounced around and then I ended up to this lab in California, if I remember correctly, or Arizona, I can't remember that. Um, and they said, oh, we have mapped every solar eclipse through the centuries. And it's on this website. So you jump onto this website and you can tab back, back in time to see not just when they happened, but where they were visible from. Because if you're in India, you're having a very different view of the night sky, or the, the sky, sorry, than you are in the UK, right? Just because of where you're pointed. And they mapped it. So they've got this global map and they've got this kind of these curves and arcs that show you where things are applicable to. <laughs> And so you tab back, tab back, tab back, tab back. I went back to 17, whatever, 50, 1740, 1730, and you get to 1708, October. I'm going to make this date up. I can't remember the precise date. October 1708, 10 December. And one of these arcs goes right the way through central India, right the way through Maharashtra and Nandir, right there. And it's just like jaw dropping that there is this, this story which has been held and transferred by, you know, from one person to the other, transmitted orally. And it's absolutely, it's got, at the very least, it's got this kind of confirmation that it was indeed of auspicious time. So why would you not believe that also this other event happened at the same day? And so we, it was it was just like this jaw dropping. I remember writing to him like two in the morning or something <laughs> and say, Pop, you're never going to believe this. I sent him the screenshot. Um, and if you look in that book, there's a, when you look on that page, there's a tiny little footnote 
Oh, I think it's not even a footnote, it's an end note. You go to the end of the chapter and you'll see just like two sentences. <laughs> it says, yes, there was, a, there was a solar eclipse and here's the website. <laughs> um, so keep your mind open, I think is the, uh, is the right thing. And don't dismiss oral histories because I think they're very important part of that. And the way that our heritage has been transmitted, the ones that you've got to pay particular attention to are um, uh, those within communities like the Nehangs. I'm sure it happens with the Dussies and others as well, where there's a very strong, almost structured method of transmission of stories and heritage. Because I think those are, those prove time and time again to be, um, yeah, just really, really good as good as a written word. Well, whilst you were um, recounting that story, I was busy trying to find a book by J.S. Godavall, Good Robin Singh's Master of the White Hawk. And the reason that it sparked me to pull that out is, is because I've just finished reading it and he recounts this, literally what you've just mentioned in... Um, a chapter regarding Banda Singh Bahadur and, and Guru Gobind Singh Ji and that story comes from Sarup Singh Koshis's Goriki Sakya. So that oral tradition, although it may have existed perhaps prior to the writing of that, um, that story is literally recounted word for word in Guruki Sakya by Sarup Singh Koshish. Um, it says Guru Gobind Singh Ji sat on Madhu Das's cot waiting for him to arrive. After midday, the cook, the Langari, asked what, what should be cooked. Maharaj replied, whatever is available in the dira. There was a deer, a goat and its two kids. All four were slaughtered for the Langari. So, yeah. And it also mentions that it was an auspicious day and it being um, a a solar eclipse and i've just put in my in my side notes science confirms this and then a big arrow pointing towards the madra podcast so thank you for that definitely um and also anyone listening to it um i just think that providing as much information as we can about whatever we're talking about just just helps because then people can go off and hopefully read it or or find out a little bit more but no um i think what i find really interesting is is that you guys and I think one thing that I really appreciate is, is that you guys take the oral tradition alongside with the written. And I think you're correct that we often, especially in the West, and it was something that I had a difficulty with during my history degree because I had a lot of brilliant information coming from people that in my eyes were very re reputable and respectable, but it was oral tradition. So it was quite difficult to almost, well, there is no way of um, footnoting that really. You're like, oh, so-and-so told me this. And, and I that kind of obviously pushes you to a certain way whilst you're doing your degree because to be honest I just wanted to get my grade and, and jump through the hoops like you're not really bothered about trying to change the system at that point I don't think um but no I, I really I think appreciate that and I think one thing that I like is is that it then creates that curiosity to be like all right well I wonder where that came from and often I I think it's just like in the podcast when the dad sing um he was like, that is just how it's trans transmitted in certain cases. But I think in some cases, it's really interesting because you can then go and find, well, actually, it's, there's a similar recounting here or, or whatever. Okay, just then moving on. And I think this is probably the, the kind of the main topic, so to speak, although we've spoken about so much else, which has been brilliant, um, which is so beyond book and exhibitions, your research has obviously seen you influencing real world changes. And I think for me, the, the most recent was recent one was uh, in relation to the commemoration work regarding the First World War. So before we just carry on with any of that, I just wanted to give you the chance to just explain a little bit about what that is and what went into getting that statement out there and, and, and everything that went with it. Yeah, thanks for that, Ahmed. It's um, um so about oh, over a year ago, maybe two years ago now, the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, it's probably an organisation most people don't really know, 
but they are they were set up after the first world war and the intent was that they would mark they would commemorate every single man that died uh, in the first world war which came from the commonwealth so who fought on the side of the sort of allied uh or the european powers um so obviously british soldiers and if you go to any war memorial in the country um that's a commonwealth war graves commission monument so i think even the cenotaph is considered a commonwealth war graves commission monument but also the um uh, you know the, the the Monte Cassino Cemetery, for example, in Italy, or all of those military cemeteries in in uh, northern France and Belgium. They're all CWGC places. India Gate, you know, the big monument in uh, New Delhi, opposite the um, Rashtrapati Bhavan. That's a Commonwealth War Graves Commission site uh, because on it are carved in there are the names of men who died in the First or Second World War. So it's remit now as, of course, First and Second World War. And its stated aim is to commemorate with a grave marker or with, um, in the case of people that were cremated and they generally don't have gravestones, then they carved in, literally carved in stone, um, the names of all the men who died in the First and Second World War. And, and they've been doing this for, you know, the better part of 100 100 years and a few years ago there was a channel 4 documentary which took the research work of a uh, professor professor michelle barrett um which had focused on non-commemoration of basically black africans who had served in the um, africa corps so the equivalent of like the indian army but in parts of east africa and had died and they were not commemorated. And the reasons that they were not commemorated was largely because of racism. Frankly, they just weren't seen as being as valuable lives as uh, the white people that commanded them or served alongside them. And, you know, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that you know, if you wind back the clock 100 years ago, those attitudes were fairly pervasive. And those attitudes now, of course, are completely unacceptable. So there was a documentary, actually, it was directed by a Bajumbi guy, John Dior. Um, and it featured David Lammy to the, the fronting of it. And, and what it did was it brought to light this kind of academic research and ultimately led, it took a little while, but it ultimately led to the Commonwealth War Graves Commission saying, all right, fair enough, let's let's have a proper global look at whether there's more of this that went on, the scale of it, and then what we should do about it. So a couple of years ago, they asked me to join uh, this special committee um, with about 10 or 15 other people to to do an initial kind of bit of research into is this just confined to that that instance, those instances, sorry, in Africa in the First World War, or is it broader than that? And then is it really to do with notions of racism or were they just impact practical issues, etc.? Um, so the commission worked for about, sorry, the committee worked for about a year. There's some great historians from the Commonwealth Organized Commission doing much of the work. Then I really picked up the Indian Army as a case study and looked at this phenomenal archive that I've been working on um, with others over the last four or five years to see if we could try to build a picture of what, what happened in India as well. 
And I think the, con the conclusions of that are fairly clear because they're out in the, the public domain now. But a couple of, uh, about a month ago now, we published that report and the report stated that yes, indeed, there were many tens of thousands names, or thousands, sorry, of names missing. Um, there's definitely a case to say that we need to do much more research work because there's a there's a sort of a prima facie case to say that there are a lot more that are missing, not just from the African core, but from India as well. And um, I mean, don't really know all of the reasons why they are missing in the case of the Indians, um, but it does look like there are, you know, there could be substantial numbers of names missing. We need to get the bottom of that. So we definitely need to do more research and we need to do more uh, we need to make sure that the commission is kind of ready to accept that it's got to do, um, it's got to, it's got to sort of expand its its work to include any of those missing names, and then it's got to properly commemorate. It's got to do the thing that it set out to do a hundred years ago, which is to commemorate those those men. Now, at any time, that's a sensitive uh, conclusion to come to, but it was it's particularly sensitive because now you can't seem to open a newspaper without some kind of culture war going on and particularly anything that has empire associated with it seems to put the public into two camps um what, what one camp which is seen as being kind of lefty and woke to the horrible term and, and then the other camp which is kind of standing up for british values and and it's just as it's just a stupid uninformed debate but this that i'm what i'm particularly pleased about is that this particular report was um you know, previewed to government, previewed to um, obviously the, the commission. And actually they took a really sensible uh, and the right approach to it, which was they accepted all of the findings, every single one, all of the recommendations, every single one. Um, and they actually even went further, which I was really surprised about, which was that the defence secretary of, this, of, of the UK made a public apology for the fact that they had been missed. And a commitment to to correcting that, which is frankly all you can ask for uh, at this stage. Now, now we now another piece of work starts, of course, what we've got to do, and a little bit more work on the research, which is is pretty difficult. But as I said, I've got this phenomenal archive that I've been working on, which um, would certainly help with the Punjab picture for the first book. Well, so yeah, it's been an amazing thing to be part of, and unfortunately, it's been received in a really mature way. I think the work that you're doing, we all really appreciate it from the books and the exhibitions, but then to see your influence in a real world kind of situation like that, I think is really empowering. But um, just continuing, and this is probably the last, and I would probably argue the most controversial question that I got asked to, to put forward to you. And it got sent in quite a lot. And I think it exemplifies what you just said about this kind of cultural war. Which is everyone wanted me to ask, how do you balance out having an OBE, considering all of the research and everything that you know, and then accepting that? But for some people, it's almost like uh, the empire is bad, therefore having an OBE is bad now what would your response be to that a lot of people kind of point to the example of benjamin Ze zephaniah when he was um he was put up for for getting a, a, an order of the empire and he said no and kind of the poem that he released in response but um what yeah what would your response be to to that yeah so i know i've had this question a few times and i've got immense respect for people that turn down um a, a national honor for for that 
reasons. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, I'm not trying to engage with with you know their reasons are less superior to my reasons or anything like that. And that'd be wrong. Um, so, so for me, the uh, I, I, to be honest, I didn't even think twice when I got offered it. Um, I didn't. I didn't have any kind of internal agony around it. And I think actually some of that is best articulated if you read, if you've been able to read Sutton's book Empire Land, because the fr- the framing of empire as either good or either bad is silly. It's really silly. I, and 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 because ninety nine percent of the people listening to this will be thinking, um, if if you are engaging in that way, will <laughs> be thinking empire bad is just read the read the read the people that say empire good. And you'll realise how how jaundiced that particular view is, right? So the Nigel Biggers of this world, or um, how was that that silly book by Jacob Rees-Mogg? Um, it, it is neither one nor the other. Just like Sick Empire was neither completely good or completely bad. It is a complicated thing. It is I'm kind of complicated. Empire not simple, <laughs> frankly. And I don't see this as being, um, I don't see having the Appalachian or the British Empire as then being in the club that says Empire good. And that's absurd. I mean, the, the thing that we did straight after this was was a book on Jenny on a Bug. Does it prevent you? And does it prevent you taking um, a topic like that and shedding light, shedding light on that in a very real way the thing that i did straight after that was the special committee on on commemoration where we said there was pervasive racism inside you know a part of the the um power structures if you like in the uk which led to non-commemoration of black and brown people so the it doesn't prevent you doing any of that it doesn't put you into one i don't see it being put into one particular account. So I've noticed something really nice in his book for those that haven't read it, which I think I never really thought about, but actually that does inform part of part of the reason why I didn't really have any internal conflict about this. Which is he says that six, peculiarly six, have a really have have had a really positive uh sorry um that Empire has been has had real positives in it, not a net positive or only positives, but have had positives because of empire. You know, we were an exalted community. A lot of the reasons that you are here, um, and I'm here, and that the advancement of of six economically is because of empire. Don't always like to admit that, but it's true, right? Like, why did your dad's parents go to East Africa? Empire. Why are you here? And not in Belgium, empire. Why are you here and not in the Bedelp empire? Um, why are we seen as being, uh, you know, so it, what, why, why are news stories about six never framed in the way that news stories about Muslims are? Empire, even this the Gabon debate in, in Australia at the moment, you can see, um, the uh, the commentary being, oh, this is a tough one. <laughs> We've got young kids with knives going into schools, but actually they're the they're the all right ones, right? It's empire. It's because of because of what we did the first and second world war. And so, again, it's not to say empire is good. It's just it's complicated, uh, and there are 
there are things that happened which were unspeakably awful, not least of which are the but also just the way that our faith has changed, right? Empire had a real impact on and the Christianization of Punjab and that um, and, and Christianization of Sikh thinking has meant we've yeah you know, we almost find native Sikh traditions um, foreign now. That's also impartial as well. Having an OBE doesn't mean that you condone one part of it and condemn the other, or that you you're completely um, uh, you know positive about the impacts of the British Empire at all. The other thing, once once I joke, somebody asked me this question when I sort of joked, oh, if I didn't um, if I didn't accept it, my mum would kill me. Ha ha ha. Um, <laughs> and actually, I thought about that with the tube home, and I thought, yeah, actually, that's true. And not that she would kill me, but that um, what a moment, eh? What a moment that that my mum and dad, who came here in the sixties, as um, you know, the same and treated in very much the same way that sometimes, you know, I don't know, more recent immigrants like Somalis or whatever are treated nowadays. They weren't, yeah, they were teachers in India, but they came here and they became factory workers and ripped off when they were trying to buy their mortgages and um, really struggled, lived in hostile neighborhoods, couldn't do the things with their kids that they wanted to do. One moment there, because uh, I took my mum to the the thing, the, the bit when they pin you on, but one moment when we drove through the gates of Buckingham Palace, just for that, I'd take it. Because it gave her a real feeling that that of even belonging, but just that the state isn't hostile. You know, the state hasn't been hostile. It's actually given her lots of really positive things. And then finally, I was um, I was especially pleased that the award was for contribution to Punjabi and Sikh culture and heritage. Really pleased with that because I think it's a Actually, what the National Honor does is it commemorates and uh, acknowledges that Sikh and Punjabi culture and heritage are an important part of the landscape, the cultural landscape of this country. It wasn't an award for community. I'm not knocking that at all for a second, but I'm just saying, I really, the fact that it was uh, an award, a National Honor for your contribution to Sikh and Punjabi culture and heritage just means that we see that we as a nation state see that as being an important valuable part of of the cultural landscape um but yeah i like as i said i didn't really i didn't really agonize over it at all no and i think joe um when you were when you're pointing to the conversation about the good barn debate that's happening in australia at the moment i think that's a really good way of actually exemplifying the how it's not so black and white so i think a lot of the people who kind of sent in in this question are also the people who would be pointing to seek action in the first world war the second world war when defending um seeks carrying the command in australia and i just think it's an easy way of highlighting how even kind of trying to take that black and white view just leads to kind of inconsistencies because you can't be on one hand be like oh like why are you taking this order of the empire and then also be like oh yeah we should keep our goodbye because we fought for the empire you're like well at what point then <laughs> like at what point does it like at, like at what point is the measurement too far and that it's like oh that's it we like we can't do that or whatever um and i think you're right satin arms book is brilliant at bringing out 
our monolithic understanding of empire and it being x or y or whatever but um no thank you for answering that as well well i think i think what he what he what he does is kind of quite similar to what we do although he's done it at a different scale is if it's not not try to be not i mean it's everything we've said during this talk actually it, it's just not try to be black and white about things it's not things are not either good or bad individual acts are you, you know, you can make a moral judgment on them one way out. You take something like the broad sweep of 150 years of history and to then give it a, a grading, you know, if you just take it, it's a pass-fail uh, overall. It's it's really silly. It's really silly. Um, life isn't like that. Our lives are not like that. We do things that we're deeply ashamed of at times and, and are stupid and are wrong. And then we do things that are right. We don't take a grade at the end of it. You, 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 you pay for your things that you do badly and you, you don't for you know you, you get the benefits for the other things it's that's just the way it is but i think i think right now there is this it's a peculiar time at the moment i isn't it where last to we are being asked to stay on one side of this battle or the other i just think i, I think that time will pass i really do but it just it just seemed a really peculiar moment in time no no definitely um there's one last question that i've got and this is just a completely personal one because um i remember my remember my dad bought me uh seeks tigers and thieves i think it was probably the first so i, I was kind of fortunate enough to grow up in a household where people like sitting the singoli were close friends with dad or people like Arvin Mandeir were close friends or people even like yourselves um like uh couldn't knew one another and I think I was exposed and at the time I had no idea so I remember going to Selinda Singoli's house and I had no I, I just thought he was just Uncle G and we'd go and see him quite a lot and only now kind of growing up when I'm reading through some of his books and it's like oh signed to my dad and I'm like what like what is going on here uh that I realized kind of the way of some of these people but um Seeks Tigers and Thieves really made an impression on me because the Jesuit account of Gurudjan Devdi Shahidi just blew me out of the water. And like you can tell because I can still tell you about it however many years, 10, 15 years after, or however long it's been since I, I had the opportunity to read it. Now, and again, this is a question that I get asked and I'm sure you get asked it all the time is, what other contemporary sources are you aware of in relation to the history of the Gurus? Um, because I think for me, that was one thing where I went, okay, our, and I don't mean to say our history isn't real, but in the sense of like, when you're at school, you learn of like, so when I was at primary school, we learned about the Romans and the Greeks and the, all of these ancient civilization. And it was taught to you in a way where it was almost like, they are just people living at a different time. Like it wasn't like, as you said at the, earlier on during the podcast, it, it's not a fairy tale. Um, and I think a lot of what you're told almost feels when you're growing up almost feels like these are fables or these are stories and i know a lot of them have kind of originated from somewhere and then developed over time if they've got passed on or they've got kind of sanitized to fit whatever but reading that jesuit account was just awesome because it kind of solidified all right this is a real history and it's not just a real history because we say it is actually other people were there to account for it so are you aware of any other contemporary sources are there any other kind of ones that you'd be like this is where you should go to to have a look or or, or whatever um so yeah six times or Thieves uh, was an attempt to try to put them all together as best we could, right? It's of that which we we had around us. Um, actually, could I just go back on that point about your dad and then like you know you you kind of growing up? So I think I've mentioned this to you before, but I have a memory of um, uh, being invited to see 
it led to a meeting where I can't remember what we discussed, but it was me, Panjit, your dad, Arvind Mandel, who's now professor of Sikh studies in North America somewhere, Vrinder um, Kalra, who's in Manchester, on a Warwick side now, Arvinda Bogle, who's a professor of Sikh studies. And um, yeah, what, what, <laughs> what a moment, eh? I wish I'd taken a picture of that that day because we had this great conversation. We sorted things out. We were going to march on and do all sorts of things. I don't know what happened after that, but um, yeah, there was there was this kind of interesting meeting point um, that your dad and those people were trying to set up. Um, yeah, Six Tigers or Thieves is is a book that attempts to pull together all of the European accounts as best we could for that hidden pit often hidden period of history um and we were inspired by it because i think it was but one six book i'm like it's wrong but i think it's but one six book on a history of the six that deals with the missile period in about nine pages <laughs> and he basically kind of went the guru died and then maharaja rajit singh pops up and there's this this, this like whole century, this really pivotal century, which um, he's not able to do much with. And that's because the source material isn't around. So we tried to gather all of the accounts that we could. And so the earliest one is exactly the one you mentioned, the Jesuit account, the letter written by a Jesuit missionary who's in the, he's kind of attached to the court of Jahangi, and he witnesses or is around when um, the martyrdom of the fifth good takes place and um actually it differs fairly substantially from what is now traditional sick telling of that of that story um and that's the that's i think the opening account and then it goes all the way up to malcolm's sketch of the six i think it stops around that i think actually the the title of it because people often think it's about you know thieves or six or something is from George Foster's account, which I think is like 1801 or something. Um, so George Foster's one of those, <clears throat> he sort of calls himself a traveler, but he's not really a traveler, he's really a spy. He's kind of trying to understand the, the, the Punjab a little bit better. He makes it through, um, he, he's, he's diary, diarying himself or diarying, he's writing. That's chronically uh, what he sees all the way through this thing. And he's when he's in the Sikh territory, uh, he is feeling under really real personal threat. He sits out with a sore thumb. I think he's disguised as a Turkish horse trader or something, but I think they're probably seen through the, through the disguise. So he, when he exits Sikh territory uh, to relative peace, he writes in his chronicles, unhurt by Sikhs, tigers or thieves, I arrived safely in Nordburg, I think it is. And it's lovely. It's like there's this moment when um, often Sikhs feel like we're almost at our weakest because it's between the Gurus and Rajiv Singh. But actually, it, look, we're fiercely um, uh, uh, independent and part of you know grabbing power in the Punjab. Just the Mughal power is, is kind of crashing away. So, but to, to sorry to to answer your question, I don't know of any other than those that we've published, but also J.S. Gadewal's excellent book, uh, Sikh History from Persian Sources, which and I'm just trying to wrap my brain to think how many of those are contemporary, um, and I don't think too many of them are. Then, there, of course, there's Bajitha Nardak, which is, which is, you know, the Tenth Guru's writings, which includes um, poetically a description of what happened in <clears throat> to his father. Um, and I think one of the mo most interesting things that's happening at the moment is 
that a lot of that material that's written in Braj Basha or Hindi or Punjabi or Persian is not just being translated, because of course Jay Skodawal had a shot at translating it, but it's not just being translated, it's being interpreted. And what Javala's doing with, you know, Guru Pratap, Suraj Prakash, Granth, he isn't just translating it, but he's explaining what those things mean, because you need total cultural awareness of the um, the languages that wrote in, the, the the other things that would have been around him at the time, the other initial would be around him, and he's interpreted that. And I think what he's doing with Mother Jana, that his kind of project to take a lot of these, um, these old texts like Suli Prakash or Panth Prakash or, or um, any of those kind of Persian accounts, I think if that is supported and resources are in there, then I think that will bring forth all kinds of all kinds of findings that we didn't have before because because so much it's not just about translation it's not just about turning a foreign word into an english word for people like me and you that perhaps they have the language skills that he does um it's also about explaining um you know why they why they wrote what they wrote there's this there's, there's some great papers on zafanama for example by um lufanech where he's taking the zafanama and shanama shanami and putting them together, and then you understand, you completely understand then what the tenth guru is writing about. Because if you just read it in English, it sort of makes sense, but it's also been a little bit flowery. But when you, when you, when you realize that the tenth guru has a detailed understanding of the Persian text Shahnameh and Zafarnama, it it blows open the whole letter in a very different way. Um, and Lou is coming, is actually closing our twenty twenty one book club with. Uh, that particular talk so i'm really looking forward to that nice that sounds interesting i'll definitely definitely be looking forward to that too and i think it's interesting uh what you said because it's an equal it's i think and i'm sure you're more than aware but it's an equally interesting thing with dasamkant because if you don't if you don't contextualize it properly you don't put it in its rightful place in kind of the cultural context and everything else that goes with it then you can lead to kind of conclusions that don't necessarily hold water um and i think I think it's interesting because I think as a community, I, personally for me, I think the Dussumgdant debate kind of waged on really quite ferociously at one point. I think that's kind of died down now and everyone's kind of gone past it. Um, and I think it's interesting now to see these other kind of lesser known sources of information. So like Suraj Prakash and, and other such grants being brought to the forefront um and also as you're saying not just being translated but explained within the correct context um and everything that goes with it and all the kind of cultural understanding and language understandings and, and everything else and i think i'm really excited to see how this develops because the more we can understand and the more we know the better um but it's also just interesting to kind of look at that roadmap and kind of see how we're developing as a community and our understandings kind of um kind of progressing alongside that you, you mentioned that some graph beginning of that your conversation with Gabor on Dustin Brown, I thought was excellent. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Um, and really kind of goes into not just what it, what it is. and Because it, it always goes down that silly conversation about to the top of Kenan and But actually just broad, broadening it out, but also understanding why it's, um, uh, you know, why, why it's kind of fallen into being almost erased, I think was was excellent and then that and that is the exact reasons why Suraj Prakash is not been there because people like Mikhail Lith, you know are often cited as 
often cited um because he he absolutely dismissed it um and some dog saying at the same time and so it just disappears you know something that is really important in sick understanding in the 19th century and into the 20th century southern boot stop um and, and not not used at all these days so it's really yeah it's really nice it's new generation of historians and linguists bring those back yeah and i'm looking forward to like the imp- like the real world implications that understanding will then have on the community because equally i guess we we like as historians we look back in time and we're like oh for argument's sake as you're saying kind of uh sort of precaution is just ignored and it just disappears and then obviously bringing and that obviously would have had then an impact just like the some was dismissed and it disappeared it had an impact on praxis equally bringing these things back to the forefront I'm interested to see its impact then on practice and everything else that goes with that. Um, I just wanted to say thank you for everything for today. Um, this conversation has been brilliant. Um, I've like absolutely enjoyed it. I've gone through all of the questions that I had. I just wanted to check if there's anything that you wanted to go over or include, or if there's anything else that you feel we've missed out. Uh, Amir, I've really enjoyed this too. Nobody listens to me for this much. <laughs> I'm really, really grateful to you. No, I've got nothing else. I'm happy to do something else again with you if you ever need to, but I think you've probably got more content than you could possibly squeeze into them. I think so. Happy to do anything with you in the future no no thank you no i'll definitely take you up on that um i think just like with pretty much everyone i've had on the podcast so far i i'm more than happy to sit here and carry on talking but then i'm also aware that people listening are probably going to turn off a lot quicker than then i will i will stop talking but um no i i just yeah i i'm just absolutely thrilled that we got the chance i'm really happy that we had this conversation and again i would definitely be in touch with um kind of future conversations and equally if there's anything that i can help with or whatever like i'm more than happy to to kind of put my energy um kind of towards whatever you guys are are, are doing for me and i said it also with Devinda Thur that you kind of gashi house and everyone kind of associated with that and everything that comes from that has been highly highly influential in my own development um like I was doing my history degree at the same time you guys put on the Golden Temple exhibition in SOAS. So for me, it was just, it was like brilliantly timed because uh, my second year paper was how far and in what ways did British, con- like British uh, Raj influence Sikh identity. And so learning about, so the first time I learned about the Arms Act and them um, making it illegal for the natives of India to carry arms was through an article that you guys published on GT1588, the old website. Um, And then obviously I came to the exhibition that blew me out of the water. Everything that you guys have done, I'm just incredibly thankful for. Um, And basically just wish you, as as I think you said at the beginning of this podcast, I think it's a good way of ending it, which is more power to you guys. Um, And yeah, and all the best really, because I just think the more that we can support people like you guys to do the work you're doing, the better. and I, I guess it is a little bit sad that people are more, are more occupied with number plates than books, but hopefully through through conversations like this, um, we can we can hopefully change that. Hopefully that's not the AU message that came out today. But thank you very much. More no. power to you. Uh, no, no, uh, thank for you. All the things that you're you're doing on on the the podcast on Twitter, which I really enjoy. Uh, I've got to get into these spaces things at some point. As these slipper. Um, and what you do with publishing as well, which I think is very interesting. No, no, thank. Well, I think you touched upon it a little bit uh, when you were saying, like in the nineties, it was really difficult. Like there was hard, like very limited resource. And I think one thing that I found until I came across the exhibition in my second year university, one thing that I found really hard was 
my library at university never had anything. If I needed anything, I had to travel in from Egom into SOAS to get hold of anything worthwhile. And then to try and buy anything, you'd have to get it shipped in from India because it was very difficult to get anything in this country. Um, and then I think kind of the ramblings thing developed organically. Good, like I got in touch with yourself about family um, ancestry because that's actually why I started this because I started to try and map ancestors and realize it's actually really difficult so so started to try and read around it to understand things and then I was like well if I find this interesting I'm sure someone else will find it interesting and then I was like all right how can I further develop my understanding and yeah it's just rolled into this and to get the support from people like yourself doing the tool group and everyone else that I've had the pleasure to talk to is just immense but I think it also goes to show the community has a common goal like everyone is trying to kind of do their bit to preserve kind of heritage in whatever sense that is but um no no thank you so much not all enjoyable all right take care